If you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn back to 1 Corinthians. We pick up today in 1 Corinthians, continuing our study through uh, Paul's first letter there. And in God's providence, there is much to say here in this text in chapter 4 about the minister. And so while it was not intended by me, the Lord uh, and the Lord's providence, uh, we will have much that will apply to our brother Frank here as uh, he has accepted and now been ordained as a minister. And so let's ask the Lord's blessing upon uh, the reading and the hearing of God's word before we do so. Uh, Join me again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Lord, we love you. We bask in knowing the privilege of your presence as we worship together now. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you are altogether holy and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean. Thank you that you are gracious and are able to deal with us in our sin and in our filth, as it were, Lord, and in our weakness and in our frailty. And we thank you that you are merciful and able to lift us up in our weakness and in that frailty and that you are strong and good and true and gracious. And we pray, dear Lord, as we turn to you again and to your word again, as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, that you would... We pray, place that word into our hearts that there we may begin to love you in new ways. Place that word in our minds that we may understand you and your ways better. Lord, touch our wills by that word that we may submit our wills gladly to your perfect wisdom and your indeed sovereign will so that all of our lives we might learn how to glorify you and enjoy you forevermore. And so we come again before you, Lord, and we ask, speak, For we, your servants, are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll be reading the first five verses this morning. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 through 4. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. So for the reading of God's word. Consider the source. Consider the source. I imagine all of you have heard uh, this, these words at some point in your lives. Uh, when a child, uh, and insulted by another naughty child, uh, you may have had your mother say this to you. Consider the source. It's okay. Uh, our parents may have told us this. We may have told this to our children to console us, to let those children know that it's really not a big deal. So we say, consider the source, child. And again, maybe you've told this to your children, uh, even as you've been told it yourself. But if we think about this little exercise and this phrase and this sentiment, many of us indeed are still plagued 
by the words and opinions of others, even into our adult lives. And as fallen people in a fallen world, we have times when we are harassed by the world outside of us. And indeed, when we are harassed even by our own hearts, weak and feeble as they are. And it's vital for us as God's people to learn to consider the source, to learn to look not to the lying words of the world or even our own lying hearts, but to look to the only voice that ultimately matters, right? the evaluation of the Lord himself. And so when we look at our text this morning, we see that Paul continues to deal with this church, with these Corinthians at this church in Corinth. And by way of forecasting, we'll see in the next number of weeks, uh, chapter 4 shows Paul doing a number of things. In our text this morning, verses 1 to 5, we see Paul confronting the judges, right? those who were judging inappropriately. And then after that, we'll see in verses 6 to 13, he confronts the boasters, those who are boasting. And then in verses 14 to 17, Paul is doting, as it were, as a father over his children. And then at the end of the chapter, we see Paul warning those who are rejecting his authority. Uh, not because it is his authority, but because it is an authority derived, given um, by the Lord himself. But in verses 1 through 5 this morning that we'll deal with, we see that Paul there, uh, Paul has to explain to them what the servants of Christ were and whose judgment really mattered at the end of the day. And we, too, brothers and sisters, can take instruction as well from this. And so let's get into this. And before we do, let's uh, begin by resetting and see the flow of God's word uh, to the Corinthians and to us um, up to this point in chapter 4 in the text. Uh, recall that this letter is, letter is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth. And you will remember what Corinth was, this, uh, this debased, famously um, immoral city. Uh, the word that came uh, as acts of immorality were to Corinthianize, right? It became a, a, a verb, a description, um, infamous as it was for its, um, uh, its immoral behavior, uh, this church, you'll recall as we got into the letter, was riddled. We see it again and again in the beginning, what we've read and what we'll read throughout. It is riddled with problems, many problems. Uh, and significantly, we see Paul begin uh, addressing the problems there, the one that is possibly uh, uh, up on the, the, the level of severity, right? This problem of divisions, divisions in the church, party schisms, party loyalty, and this is the issue, indeed, of the first four chapters. Party divisions, divisions, schisms, fractions in, factions in the church. And you'll recall that the reasons for this problem, aside from an overall lack of love, the reason of the divisions, uh, this problem of divisions was what? It was an inappropriate exaltation of human leaders. Right? They're inappropriately exalting men. And also an inappropriate grounding of those judgments in human wisdom, right? So the exaltation of human leaders and the grounding of that assessment in human wisdom, the wisdom of the world. And you recall in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, what I mean is that, is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I Christ. Right? Setting up leaders for their factions, their party heads. And this resulted in this worldly wisdom uh, this was a result of this worldly wisdom and thinking, which Paul showed again and again, we saw, is foolish and weak over against the wisdom and power of God. 
Paul has told them that it is folly to judge uh, one teacher over another teacher, to set them against each other. In chapter 3, you will recall that to do this, right, to judge or evaluate one teacher or preacher who's preaching and teaching the truth over another, that this shows a complete misunderstanding of what a minister is, right, of what the ministry is. And then Paul goes on in chapter 4 here, and he says that it is God who ultimately makes the judgment. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, he used to, he was fond of saying uh, the phrase, he would say, God is God and you are not. Right? And that seems uh, as, as simple and self-evident as that seems. Right? God is God and you are not. Um, it nevertheless is true, and it's a good corrective in many contexts. And this is one of those contexts. Right? God is God and we are not. God is the one to evaluate his servants and his ministers. Because he does so how? And alone, solely he does so, in holiness and in consistency and in perfect accord with his character. When the Corinthians judged God's servants, they erred because they did so according to what? To the wisdom of the world. To the wisdom of the world. And so even we can fall into this mistake of judging God's ministers on wrong, uh, wrong things, right? Things of our own invention, Right? Very often when uh, ministers in the church are judged, it's, they're judged based on their charisma or on their education or how big their church is or how many books they've written, right? their publishing credentials or how many letters they have after their name. And that's not to say that those things can't be indicators of his service. Indeed, they can, but they are not necessarily so. They're not necessarily so. In fact, some who fit the judgments of man these very things, outwardly, they at the end of the day still could be quite wicked. And so another thing to keep in mind as we look at this text is that the Bible is not teaching that we should never, ever make judgments. Right? We all know, I think we've touched on this in the past, uh, in 1 Corinthians here, we know non-believers who love to quote the Bible. And what's the verse that they love to quote in order to challenge or shut a Christian down, right? What is it? If they know nothing else of the Bible, they know this verse. Judge not, at least you be judged, right? And what are they doing there? They think, well, see, there I've done it. I've defeated your beliefs and shown your hypocrisy, right? Or something like that. And at bottom, what are they saying? They're saying it's wrong to judge. But what's the glaring problem with that? When they do that, what's the glaring problem? It's so obvious we miss it. They're judging us, right? They're judging you when they say that. And so this is a self-referential absurdity. It's self-defeating. But more than that, it's a misuse of the verse, right? It's cherry-picking certain verses without consideration of the rest of Scripture. And so you all should equip yourselves and memorize verses like John 7, 24 that says what? It says, do not judge by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. Make a right judgment, Christ commands. We are to judge rightly. We are to make right judgments. And certainly, when false teaching comes about and non-biblical teaching is being given forth, we must judge it. We must judge it as erroneous, as wrong, as unbiblical, as false. We see something of this in Romans 16, 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, Paul says. 
What does this require? It requires discernment. It requires judgment of that fall of that doctrine uh, to see that it's false or true. And so we see here in verses 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul teaches us how we are to understand the ministers of the Lord. The passage identifies the minister, the servant, and the proper attitudes towards them. The Corinthians' evaluation, their judgment was based on false foundations. And if our identification, our evaluation, our judgment is wrongly founded, we commit the same error. So we're again going to look at what God tells us about ministers and then the source that God would have us all to hear that is truly and ultimately significant. And it's not our hearts and it's not the world. Uh, So let's look first at the minister. Verse 1, the minister. Uh, We'll look at a number of things in regard to the minister throughout this text. Uh, First, we're going to see the definition of a minister in verse 1. Verse 1, it says this. Again, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see what it says there? This is how one should regard us. This is how one should reckon us, consider us, should account us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Right? Let us, Paul says, be regarded as servants of Christ. Uh, the old English version of the Bible uses the word minister, right? It's plain and clear. Let us be ministers of Christ. This is how we should, you should consider us. This is how one should consider us as ministers of Christ. And what is a minister? The word simply means a servant. It's a servant. And this is a key difference. You know, I don't know how many of you uh, recognize this. Um, that was emphasized at the recovery of the gospel at the time of the Re- Protestant Reformation. The church had corrupted the teaching of Scripture and viewed the church and her officers and the authority of the church as magisterial, right? Magisterial, that is having total authority, as dictatorial, as domineering, lording over. And the opposite of that is what? Right? It's the picture of what leadership in the Word of God says. The Reformers and faithful Presbyterian and Reformed churches still maintain this emphasis. And we see it in our documents, and we see it in our secondary standards, and it's emphatic. The authority of the church and her officers is not magisterial. It's ministerial. Right? That's a big difference. Ministerial, and that simply means service. The authority of the officers of the church, of the minister, is derived from God's word, not from men. It's not their own whims. And it's service. Right? It's a service, a ministry of service. The minister is to serve out God's word. He's to take what God's word is and serve it to the people. And the word that we see there in 1 Corinthians 4.1 uh, that's translated servants is a word that means, you translate it literally, it's under rower. Right? An under rower. Uh, there are a handful of words that the New Testament uses that have this semantic range, servant, service, bond slave. Right? They have this certain flavor or sense to them. Right? And there are a handful of them. There's one that you may know that's the word doulos or doulos. Uh, and it's the word that's translated as slave or bondservant. Um, there's, uh, then there's the word that we get the word deacon from. The word deacon. And that has a range of meanings. Now, sometimes it means the office of deacon. Other times it means simply service. Other times it means a table waiter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.5 we see this word where Paul says, 
What then is Apollos? What is Paul? These are the words the word that we get deacon from. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. But the word in 4.1 that we're looking at this morning is the word that means under rower. Uh, that's the word, that's where it comes from. It's an oarman, right, in a ship. Somebody who's uh, an oarman on the lower deck of the ship, right? And it, comes, it came to mean uh, one who functions as a helper in a subordinate capacity. It's a helper, it's an assistant, a servant. And when we see that word and we think about what's, all, what's packed into that word, we see how different from the worldly wisdom that led the Corinthians to, 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 to drive after them, to set up their guru teachers and preachers, how different the evaluation of those two. And sadly, this is not uncommon uh, in some churches today as well. Another place we see this word, Luke chapter 1, as Luke opens, uh, Dr. Luke opens his, his gospel, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, under rowers of the word, have delivered them to us. Right? Ministers of the word, under rowers, servants of the word. It's the same word used there. And that, that's instructive, right, when we look at that. Servants of Christ, Paul says in Corinthians. Servants, under rowers of the word, the Apostle Paul tell, uh, Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke. Servants of Christ, you see, are servants of his word. Not their own word, Christ's word. It says servants of Christ, right? We aren't primarily servants, uh, we aren't primarily to serve people, as our primary goal, we are to serve Christ. Right? And what happens? That ends up being the best and most effective way to serve people, is being faithful to Christ and serving Christ and to serve his word. This ends up delivering to them exactly what they need, to serve and be faithful to Christ and to his word. And again, this isn't, uh, our brother Frank will have, an, I imagine, uh, a service where he will be charged and he'll be given a word to his new calling but I'll, I'll say just a word to remind our brother here uh, who's been called to the ministry of the word, to serve the word and to serve Christ. Um, but I don't think that this, has, uh, that this has no application at all to all of you, to all of us as laymen and laywomen in the body of Christ. It is imperative to recognize, right, uh, and maintain the distinction of the office of minister. Right? We don't want to blur that distinction. Ephesians 4 is very clear on this. Right? That office, that... Uh, ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ and given by Christ to his church as a gift for their good and for their service. But by way of extension, right? By way of extension, all of Christ's sheep are to be engaged in service, right? Not in an official capacity, but as a lifestyle, as a way of life. This is who we are. We give ourselves whole soul to the Lord. And you are to serve Christ in loving your neighbor and to serve the Lord in serving your brothers and sisters in the body and in all that you do. But for my reminder and for yours as well, and for our brother Frank here so going to going to minister and to serve in an official capacity called by the Church of Christ, let's remember a few things here about the minister. Right? This is the reason we wrote we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Right? 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we see the full commitment there and the full weight of the call and what the calling is. And I'll just read a portion of that text again. 
where we see again that word servants, right, in chapter, uh, verse 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in affliction, in hardship, in calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with what? With, we- with the weapons of, the right- of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is the calling of the minister, the servant of the word, the servant of Christ. And I command our brother Frank here to meditate on this word and for all of us to meditate on this, just what the calling is. Christ ministers, I and now he, endure everything, right? All criticisms, all misjudgments, all slander. Why? It's all because we are committed. We are ministers and servants of Christ and his word. All because our priority and our posture towards God and towards his holy word. We are obsessed indeed and bent towards not being people pleasers, but being God pleasers. And that will run roughshod against those who do not like that. But nevertheless, that is our obsession and that is our bent. And with that, there must be, along with that, a holy indifference about what other people think of that calling. We cannot be concerned with what they think about us. And you, Brother Frank, as a minister, must be solely concerned with carrying out that calling, that to which you've been called to, in faithfulness and obedience towards God and His Word. And as you serve, this must be your perspective. And when the heat is turned up in your ministry, and it gets turned up in every ministry, and the storms of service are swirling around you, what is the command to you? What is the command? You are to be an under rower, right? a servant of the word. Right? Again, think of uh, that same, the, the word being used there, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And what is that? To make the word of God fully known. That is your call, Brother Bartow. To become a slave according to the stewardship from God that was given to you. To make the word of God known, what does it say? In its fullness, in its fullness. It's glorious. It's glorious to call. Pray for our brother. Pray for Bridget as they enter into this new chapter of life. Brother, obey, be faithful. Take his word and serve it out. That's what you're called to do. We're not called to be novel. We're not called to be uh, innovative or to make, make up new things that work best in our culture. We are called to be faithful and obedient to the word of Christ and to dole out what the text means and what it says and to press that word into the hearts of your hearers and to apply that word from the pulpit and to apply that word from the lectern and apply it across the kitchen table and in the hospital room. That is what you're giving is the word of Christ. 
You're a warrior of Christ. And your weapons, what does it say? Your tool is his mighty word. Ministers have been entrusted with the treasures of the things of God, dear people. And though the, word, the world regards them, ministers, and the things that they do, they regard them as lowly. But God has called them to that very particular and ultimately significant task. Pray for your ministers. And then the next word we see in that verse, verse 1, is stewards. Uh, Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, right? And that's a word that we're familiar with uh, as well, right? It's in the same range of servant, of server. um, And uh, you'll be familiar with the word, right? What do you call people, uh, those ladies on a plane who serve you and bring you things and food and help you? Stewardess, right? Or stewardess. Or on a ship, I think the same thing. A steward or a stewardess. And that's close to the idea. In the original language, it meant someone who's been entrusted to supervise a large estate, for instance. A manager or an administrator. Our text says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And the word means that though the steward is managing something, he is always subservient to the owner. It's not his things that he's managing. It's someone else's. It's his master. Right? We understand that, right? We, the minister is to care for the church. But the church is not their church. It's Christ's church. They commit their life to it in following Christ. And again, all Christians, all of you, are to be good stewards, we're told, in Scripture. And we know this instinctively. We use phrases like this. We speak of being good stewards of our finances, of our time, of our children. Uh, we speak of exercising good stewardship, right? The word is built in right there. God has given us gifts, given all of you gifts and resources. You're to use them for the service, in the service of his church. Uh, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. The apostle Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Right there it is right there. We're all stewards. We're all to steward those things, to serve one another. Ministers, we read in verse 1 here, are, minister, are stewards of the mysteries of God. And what is that? What is the mysteries of God? We've already encountered this earlier in chapter 2, um, verses 1 and 7. Paul's already referenced the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are those things connected to the revelation of the gospel. They're those things that which were, were hidden in the Old Testament until the coming of Christ and the fullness of time. And they've been revealed for us. And Paul is telling us here that these secrets have been entrusted to the ministers who have been called and charged to proclaim them to the world. That which had been hidden has been made plain. That's what the, that's what the minister is a steward of, this very thing, the gospel. And so that's the first thing that we learn from this passage. Ministers are to be stewards and servants, right? That's their definition. That's their identity. And then secondly, we learn here what is the demand or the requirement of Christ's ministers, the requirements of Christ's ministers. And we see this in verse 2, where Paul says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. They be found trustworthy. It's my estimation that that's an unfortunate translation. Uh, The word is... Pistos, it's the word that means faithful, right? It has to do with believing, with faith. 
Um, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. And that is indeed how some translations in English translate that word. They are to be found faithful. Um, and again, notice in the context of what Paul is saying and he's dealing with, he doesn't say that the requirement for the steward is to be uh, a great charismatic speaker or to be handsome or even a super genius or a performer. He says the steward is to be faithful. That's what's required of him, to be faithful. All those other attributes can still be had and the person still be a deceptive, unscrupulous shyster, right? The steward must be, he's required to be faithful. And isn't that what the Lord desires to find all of us when he returns? Faithful servants. At the end of Matthew 20, chapter 24, he says this, right? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so, what? Being faithful uh, and wise when he comes. Brothers and sisters, plead with your Savior and King that he give you and grow you to be faithful servants in all that you do in service to him and to his kingdom and to his people. I know the weakness of the flesh and the slowness of heart that all of us encounter. I know it. But the glorious thing is, your Lord knows it too. Your Lord knows it too. And he not only calls us to be faithful and trustworthy, but he has given us the tools to do so. You're not left in the weakness, in the slowness of your own heart. You're not left in the slowness and weakness of your flesh. He's given you tools. He's given you things. He's ordained things for you. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. And he's given us prayer, all to strengthen and to grow us in faithfulness and in trustworthiness. And it is by these means that he increases that faith and he continues to transform us and strengthen us to what? To believe in him and his word. What a wonderful Lord we have who's condescended and meets us and gives us exactly what we need. How foolish we are. We try to make things up on our own and we just eschew and ignore those things he's given us. What a wonderful Lord. And so we see here first the definition of the minister and then the demand of the minister, the requirement of the minister. He's to be a servant, a steward. He's to be faithful. And then thirdly, we see the disposition of the minister. The disposition of the minister. Look there, notice how Paul understands, his understanding of this is entirely different from those whom he's talking to. These baby food eating, immature Corinthians the servants, the ministers of the church at Corinth. Or rather, the, the, the servants there at the church, they were servants to the Corinthians. The ministers were servants to the Corinthians. But notice the Corinthians are not the masters of the ministers. Right? You see that? The, 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 the Corinthians are not, therefore, the masters of the ministers. Who's the master? It's God. It's the Lord alone is the master to the minister. That is to whom they answer. And that being the case, Paul is not hung up on what these Corinthians think. All through his minister, he is attacked all around for lots of reasons. But what's Paul's disposition? 
He's not worried about those things. His disposition is God-focused. He's God-concerned. And so he says in verse 3 there, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. And that's the point here. Right? Does it make sense? If we, brothers and sisters, are entirely given over to God and entirely concerned with what He thinks and what His evaluation of us is, the judgment and the evaluation of others is put into His proper perspective. Right? Consider the source. Consider the source. What others, when they, whatever they criticize and attack us, that will fade away if we have a proper perspective and we can truly grasp that phrase. Consider the source. Because if we are bent in all of our lives towards God, the God who decreed and accomplished and applied our salvation to us, we're bent towards Him, all other things will not bother us as much. Right? Even our own hearts, our doubting hearts. And this has application, of course, for preachers as well as all Christians, all of us. Ministers must, must take care not to preach with the goal of being popular or to please people or to focus on what hearers think they need to hear. Rather, they're to focus on what? What's the focus of the minister? On the preaching of God's word, on the text of Scripture. They are to explain the revealed mystery which has been entrusted to them And this extends to all of us in a certain degree, right? It's not the judgment of others or even ourselves that has ultimate value. It is God's judgment. It is his evaluation that matters. We must get into his word and get his word into us because it is by that word that he will grow us and grow us to know his evaluation, what he thinks, his judgments, his law, his decree. So 1 Corinthians 4.4 says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is going on with this point. He knows that God is his judge. And because of that, his conscience is clear. He's done his best to be faithful. He knows that God has covered all of his sins with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in a powerful way. Paul knows that since God... Not the world, not himself, but God is his judge. He has not acquitted himself by his own efforts. He knows that. But he entrusts this to God, where it alone should be with God. And Paul is confident that God is sovereign. And he's confident that God can never have his sovereign plan, his divine plan. It can never be derailed by those judging him by worldly standards. Paul knows this, and so he appropriately is not so concerned with the judgment of others. Paul has such an eternal perspective here, and he knows that indeed final judgment is coming, and he knows that he is covered in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness, even as we are, brothers and sisters. You, as you have believed and entrusted in Jesus, you are covered in those same robes, Christ's righteousness, For you, and when the Father sees you, He does not see your filthiness and your dirtiness and your sin. He sees the perfection of His Son. It's glorious. So Paul can go on and say, Therefore I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
Right? And it's there that we enter into that lab, the last point here. And that's the source to which we should listen. Right? The source to which we should listen. And again, it's not our own doubting, uh, condemning hearts. It's not the twisted standards of the world. But rather what? Paul says he will wait for final judgment. Because he trusts the Lord who will judge. And so what are we to do, brothers and sisters? What are we to do? We are exhorted here to focus on being faithful and to leave the outcome of it all in God's hands. And he says there in verse 5, the time. And they're not, they're not pronounced judgment before the time. What is he speaking of there? Well, the time that we're waiting for is the second coming of Christ. When he comes back, it all happens. Right? It's a pretty simple schema. It's a pretty simple uh, outline. When the Lord returns, that's when everything happens. And on that day, all things will be brought into the open, into the light of day. Even those things which we try and hide in darkness. This is speaking of sin, that the dark purposes of the heart brought out in the open. And at the last day, the day of judgment, God will take care of all of it, Paul says. And you see, brothers and sisters, we see in this passage not only information about ministers, but about the things that God delights in from all of his children. And we learn again of the supremacy of the Lord our King, that he is the one to whom we should live and for whom we should live and concern ourselves with not our weak hearts, not the wicked world. He will take care of it all and in his timing. And confident of that, Paul can be confident in his life, in his ministry, in all that he does. And so remember, remember as you continue to worship him this morning and as you descend back into the world as we wrap up here, remember that God has given you life that you would give that life for him in his service. Remember that he has given you faith to believe and trust in him for life, that you would be faithful and trustworthy for him. He has freed you from the bondage of sin, including self-worship, including the idol of people-pleasing. And he's done so in order that you would worship him and that you would live to please him. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a child of this King, our powerful and loving Lord? Praise Him, brothers and sisters. Praise Him with all of your lives. Amen. Let's pray.